Welcome to Harvest Amarillo Podcast. We're excited you have chosen to listen in today. May God encourage you through this message to live a life of value, of fullness, and fruitfulness for His kingdom. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to have you open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start there with verse 50. 1 Corinthians, this will not be up on the board. Uh, I changed that this this morning. Isn't that how it works? And so uh, please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're starting there with verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself, clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. What he's talking about here is going from glory to glory. And of course, of course, this sermon series magnified is speaking on that very thing on the glorification because we talk about justification, we talk about sanctification, but rarely do we bring up glorification unless it's where at a funeral. Okay, way to stay with me, church. All right, but if you back up to verse 42, so we're just backing up a little bit. I wanted to start there, but I want to back up just a little bit. So verse 42, so, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory, in glory. And that's what we're talking about today. The glorification of these, our bodies, as well as the spirit that is within us. Glorification, as you found out last week, actually means the spiritual definition is this, to make weighty or to give weight, to make heavy. God is heavy. And when we're in his presence, we receive that heaviness. It also means to make glorious by bestowing honor, praise, or admiration, to elevate to celestial glory. Now, here's, here's what we know is that if you want God magnified in your life, there are a couple of ways that this can happen. One of the ways, actually, it doesn't happen very well. But unfortunately, as we look at the church, and I don't believe in substitution theology, just a heads up there, I don't believe that, that Israel or the church is a substitute for Israel. I'm just going to that's just some, some theology some of you will know. That's not where I'm going here. Okay, but what I am talking to you about is that, is that if you watch Israel and what they do, last week we, we talked about Moses going up on the mount on Mount Sinai and entering into the glory of God. And, and the people, they, they could have gone with Moses or they could have gone to be in the presence of the Lord but they didn't want to they were afraid they would be consumed because glory also is light and light is also what hot we talked about how the glory of God is often compared to the sun and and the closer you get the hotter it gets right and it's interesting to me that Moses has a conversation with God and he says Lord I want to see your glory and the Lord said, no one sees my face and what? 
lives. And yet, David comes along and many times says we are to seek his face, meaning we should seek God's glory. As we approach God, the things of this world grow strangely dim. The chaff in our life begins to burn away. And that's why David says continue to pursue God that he may magnify himself to you. Now, magnification happens one of two ways. To look from a distance into a magnifying instrument, to magnify it that way, or simply as you draw nearer to the object, it is more magnified in your life. Now, even though we are born in the image of God, there is a part in us that bears no resemblance to God. You don't hear this very often. Everybody always says, oh, you were created in God's image, and in the image of God, you're, you're created, and oh, you're beautiful, and you're... No. Let me just tell you something. There's a part of you that's ugly. All right? Now, I'm not going to start pointing fingers right now, but here's what it means is, is simply that, that there is sin, and because God is glory, that means there is no sin. He is in the purest state, the purest form. There is no sin in God, and yet... We know this, there is sin in these members. And that's why I started where I did today. In order for us to go from glory to glory, this body cannot stand in the presence of God in the state that it's in. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to unpack for us. Look, this is why we need new bodies. That's why this is sown in dishonor, but one will be raised in honor and glory. So we can be fully in the presence of God. And you say, well, but Moses came down and had the glory of God upon him. He did, church. It's known as the Shekinah glory, but that is a deposit from God. We too can receive a deposit, but the flesh, uh-uh. Not for eternity will it stand in the presence of God. So in some ways, Adam was in the image of God, of course, in the purest form at one state, but when he sinned, he lost a big part, maybe the main part of who he was. And by the way, I threw this in there because I think this is a problem with us today. I think this is why so many struggle with image. Sin causes us to abort the image we were given. And this is why we can't condone it because Jesus died for it so our image could be fully restored. In two weeks, you're going to hear me preach a message that's going to nail this thing. I'm telling you. Did you and you may not have, uh, you may be out there right now saying, Curtis, I got up an hour earlier this morning. You're unpacking a lot right here at the beginning of your message, and I cannot stay with you. Listen to me. It's very important. Many struggle with image. Sin causes us to abort the image we were given. And this is why we can't condone it. Because Jesus died for it so our image could be restored. So that we could have a second innocence. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. We talked about this scripture last week. And it speaks about sin. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him. Isn't that interesting? Immediately Paul says they didn't glorify God. They didn't see the weightiness that God has. They didn't make him glorious by bestowing honor, praise, or admiration. They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Even within the church, many times we fill up on false glory. 
And by the time the real thing is before us, as I said last week, we don't have much left. I talked about going to Pakasak and getting the two pies for $2 just before you eat lunch. You fill up on something that's artificial. There's not enough room for the salad for what's good for you. You know, you wind up almost but not quite junk instead of the real thing. A glory that is fading. Temporary satisfaction. And our appetite is stolen for God. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 43, we are created for God's glory. Colossians 1, Christ in me is the hope of what? Glory. And we are called to be a reflection of his glory as well. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we are created in his image and we should be his image in this world. We are his advertisement, but the advertisement is only as good as its representation. You can only advertise something that you really know. If you try to advertise something you don't know, then, then what happens is it becomes a false advertisement. And when the questions get deeper, you don't have the answers. Today, we can only represent His glory so far in this life. I want you to hear me, which is a good thing. Guys, look, if, if it ended with and in this body for eternity, come on. This body is slowly what? Perishing. It's slowly dying. It's losing the image it once had. You know what I'm talking about. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sure, we can have a deposit of his glory, and we should have a glow. Jesus reminds us to let your light shine as a city on a hill, that we are to have the glow of God upon us. We can have that deposit by being in his presence. But as we distance ourselves through the hour, throughout the day, throughout our lives, what happens is we grow dim. And we must stay in His light in order to absorb His light. Last week, I, I showed this example. This is some of this putty here that glows. And you put a flashlight under it. And if I were to keep that flashlight there, I was playing with this this weekend downstairs in my office. Um, you don't want this to get in your carpet. And it doesn't taste very good. But, but the deal is, is that if I leave it downstairs in the basement in the dark, and I go down there an hour later, you can't even tell where this is located. But if you keep the light under it for an hour or so, it will maintain its light in the basement for I don't know how long. For three, four hours, it's still glowing. But it will grow strangely dim if I don't light it back up, if I don't put it back in the presence of the light. And it's that way with each and every one of us. Sin causes us to fade. Sin causes us to drift. Just before Peter denies Christ, the Scripture says it specifically that Peter was following from a distance, a separation. And it happened quickly. See, before sin entered, this is beautiful, Adam was completely in the image of God. He was not God. But he was in the image of God outside of sin. Now, let's look at how, how this affects us today. Because for, for some of us, we're saying, okay, well, I need to get in the light. I need to get with Christ. I, I need to, to spend time with Jesus. I need to, to there's, there's, there's bound to be some things that, that would cause me to glow brighter. 
Well, I want us to look at, at water. A few years ago, I preached a message that was called, Where There's Water, There's Life. I talked about Dad and I going to the canyon hunting years ago and, and, and looking down on the water in the bottom of the canyon. And I said, look at how big those trees are. And I just remember Dad saying, yeah, where there's water, there's life. We live in the desert. <laughs> but you can really see it there. And, and I, 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 I went back and I, was, I actually wrote a message called that out of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Psalm 1, go read it, who is planted by the waters, right? See, when you do a, a, a study in Scripture on the water, you find out that water means so much. The water begins with the rivers of Eden, the Gishon, the Pishon, the Euphrates, and the Tigris. You just saw, I have that memorized. That's because I used to teach the children in Bible Bowl, you know, and that was a Bible Bowl question. What are the four rivers that flowed out of Eden? So there's no brilliance there. It's just, I remember that question. But, but it actually means it, the water in its purest form. Eden represents purity. And so the waters, the first waters you see in Scripture are in their purest form. They float out into a desert to produce fruit, to, to produce provision for God's people. The purest form. The next river that you see in Scripture is the Nile. It represents bondage, sin, death, where hearts are hardened towards God. You remember the river, river Nile? It was the place where, where Moses told Pharaoh, Hey, look, this is the last plague. You're going to have to let my people go. And, and, and this plague, or next to the last plague... This plague that would come on, you, you remember, it, it, it hit the river Nile. It turned it to blood. It represented sin, death, bondage. The, the next piece of water that you see in Scripture is the Red Sea. And the Red Sea represents deliverance. Isn't it interesting that the Israelites had to cross the Red Sea? They, they had seen red before in the river Nile, but God is going to part the death and take them into life. Finally, the River Jordan. Now, by the time you get to the River Jordan, you know that uh, we're, we're headed to, to overtake. This is a conquering river. This is where the Israelites start saying, hey, we are someone right? And Joshua says, hey, uh, we need to make a, a sacrifice because we're going over as conquerors. It's not even a fight because God's got the fight won. We now move as conquerors. They are participating with God. And when they crossed here, and not only did they sacrifice in remembrance, but they sacrificed to remember that they are called to be victors. Examples, reflections, advertisements of God's glory. And then, of course, we start running into bodies of water in Scripture. Now, large bodies of water in Scripture, they represent people, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, I just laid some, some groundwork here to show you how I believe God's glory is unpacked in our lives here in, in, as we have time on earth. Because this is what we know about the bodies of water. The first few bodies of water that I just took you through, what is that? That's salvation. That's salvation. That's what I just explained through the first few bodies of water to you. 
So what does that look like in our salvation, salvinic experience? Prevenient grace. God's pure love flowing out into the world to draw everyone in. Now I'm going to go through three graces here with you very quickly. Uh, John Wesley identified these graces, and, and, and it's very evident to what, what is taking place. Prevenient grace is God's pure love flowing out into the world to draw them in. The, before mankind was created, the rivers were already flowing. Examples of God's grace, mercy, and love of his life. Jesus said what? That he is the, the well, the life springing, well of water springing up to eternal life. Prevenient grace is that. It's that, that grace that goes before us. I like to, to share it this way. Uh, years ago, I used to rope calves, and I loved roping calves. The problem is I wasn't very good. And so you wouldn't call me much of a cowboy, but uh, uh, I, I love to, to go out with the cowboys, and I love to, to rope calves. And if you think about prevenient grace as like the horse that's backed into the box, and over here uh, you have the calf, and the horse watches, and he's staring, and he's waiting for that calf to be released. And as soon as that calf is released, what happens? The horse takes off, and he lines up behind that calf. Now, some calves break right. Some calves break left. Some calves run as hard as they can to the other end of the arena. And some calves just mope. It's kind of like different personalities. The gate flies open. You don't know what's going to happen. But one thing that never changes is the job of the horse. The horse knows regardless of the direction the calf goes, my job is to stay behind, the, behind him. And as soon as I position the rider just right, a rope will fling from him and will go around the calf's neck. I will stop and that calf will, well, they don't let them do it anymore, but I was taught a little different way. You're supposed to pitch it over their back, the slack, and that causes the calf to come over and it kind of knocks them loopy and they're easier to tie that way. But anyway, <laughs> I, want, I want to stay with that analogy because when the calf comes over and he gets up, who's he facing? The horse. And I like to illustrate that, that, that the rope is like the Holy Spirit and just at that time, the right time, that calf is caught. And at the end, the calf has actually submitted to the Spirit and to God. He, he's turned. But, but, but the role of God never changed. He pursues every calf. And not all calves will be caught. Not all calves will surrender. That's prevenient grace. God never stops pursuing us. And to me, that's... that's that's just a, a beautiful picture of seeing God's creation, Romans 1, and recognizing that there is a God. The next type of grace is justifying grace, justification. It's our response. It's when we yield. It's when we're caught. We recognize our need for a Savior from sin and death, and we respond. Some won't. Some, some people's hearts will simply harden and say there is no God. It, it, it's that place where, to me, the, the rivers become, become available for us and, and we begin to, to surrender. We begin to say, hey, I'm willing to step into that place. The next one is sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace means this. God's grace now flows through us to cleanse us and we flow into other people's lives. Our sanctification may be someone's prevenient grace. 
Meaning that as I walk my walk out with the Lord, others may see it and say, wow, who is this God that you serve? I believe that question was asked several times throughout Scripture. See, but the story doesn't stop there. In, in Wesleyan theology, there's not a whole lot spoken about glorification. But that would be the next step. Glorification is something only God does. His promise is that we will all be glorified, but only a deposit can happen here and now. But we still continue to pursue God's glory. We follow the cloud of glory, and we want to enter into it so that we can absorb His light and be a reflection and the right type of advertisement for His world here today. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you want to fight the predestined argument with me, you can all day long. But let me tell you what we're predestined to. We're predestined to be conformed into his image, is what the scripture says. Some will be and some won't. But that's what we're called to do as far as the predestination. But notice something, those he called, it means we should find our calling. He also justified, justifying grace. And those he justified, the next, next step is what? Glorification. As long as Moses and the people followed the cloud, listened to the voice thereof, they would eventually walk into glory. Now, deliverance is not glory. Church, hear me, deliverance is not glory. What happened to the Israelites when they finally got delivered? Matter of fact, even when they walked over as, as victors, what happened? They started marrying into other cultures. They started uh, serving false gods. They, they, they definitely weren't walking in glory at that time. Deliverance is salvation, but we should look to spend time with God during our sanctification, and we should have a deposit of his glory through glorification. And as long as Moses continued to pursue what happens, he carries God's glory. A temple, let me talk about the temple for just a moment. Temple practices, uh, of course, were being set up at this time. And Joshua would, would, would continue them after Moses. And before he crossed the River Jordan, of course, they would sacrifice. Now, here's the thing. This is why the temple was set up. It was set up so that we could have somewhat be reminded of what glorification looks like, the glory of God at the mercy seat, the holy of holies in the temple. Now, as people would sin, because sometimes people sin. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. No, I don't curse. You don't know me. I'm holy. No. The Apostle Paul says sin is actually in your members. That one bothers the heck out of me, but I think that's part of why the flesh has to die. Every time someone sinned in the Old Testament, they would lay their hands on the animal, confess, and the animal would be transferred into the sanctuary. The record of sin would be kept in the temple. And once a year, the high priest would cleanse the sanctuary. Some of you know it this way. You take the garbage out and you set it at the side of your house or out on the street. And one day a week, right, a truck comes by and takes the garbage. For a short time, your house is somewhat garbage free. What if the truck doesn't show up? Mm -hmm. The trash tends to stack, right? 
When glorification happens, this is what happens. The truck not only comes by, he takes the trash to a desolate place never to be seen again. Never to show up again. He remembers our sin no more. We are found in Christ. I will cast your sins into the sea of forgetfulness is what the Lord says. Those who are glorified at some point in time when we're glorified from this life into the next, this will be so odd. We may try to confess our sins, but there is no record anymore. The high priest has taken them away. And this is why the son in the book of Revelation will be dismissed. And God's glory will be enough. Fast forward a thousand years or so. I'm guessing at this one, but it's somewhere in there. 1,200 years. Ezekiel has a vision. Of course, this is at Kabar. This is a uh, this is prophetic vision. At this time, um, Ezekiel is warning about abominations done in the temple. Okay, so now some improper practices are even happening, happening in God's earthly temple, what he's left here to show us and to teach us. And so there's these abominations that are happening, and he speaks about the glory of God. He has a vision of God's kingdom in Ezekiel 47. Then man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water com- coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. So here the temple is facing east, all right? So this direction to my right would be what? South or the side. See if you pick up on this. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around outside the outer gate facing east, and the water was even trickling there from the south side. Do you see the picture? Christ. Christ calls himself the sanctuary. He he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will what? Raise it. I will raise. He, he's given us an example. Ezekiel seeing the kingdom of God being played out. You remember, uh, and I shouldn't have to say too much about this, but you remember when Jesus was on the cross and, and after he died, what happened? They pierced his side and blood and mostly water flowed. The water is coming from the sanctuary. Wherever the water goes, it provides healing. The water is coming from the altar. Jesus said, I am the sanctuary. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Healing waters are flowing from the side of this vision. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, which is about 500 yards, and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and he began to walk. He led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. Look, when we step into the water, the first thing Ezekiel saw is that mankind has to step into the healing waters of Jesus. And that is known as justification. That's where we are justified. He continued to walk knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. What's happening here is the process of sanctification. The water's continuing to run. 
And as water, I've shown you this illustration before, but if I were to take a cup of dirty water and pour clean water into the top and just keep it overflowing, what happens? Eventually it becomes clean. It's purified. And this is purification taking place. Now look, at this point, Ezekiel, seeing this, knows that the man must continue to follow as he's led. He can't stop. He can't run back to the bank. He's got, he's got to continue to work, to walk in this process. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. Here comes glorification. Only God can cross the River Jordan and bring you with him. That's glorification. Take you to the promised land. Take you into eternity. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. Isn't it interesting? There's living water running into a mass of death. That sound familiar? And keep, keep going with me here. Because this water, I'm sorry, and when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish. Remember what Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh, so where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englame. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. See, every tongue, tribe, and nation is represented. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. What happens when we refuse to move? When justification is just enough in ankle-deep water. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It's a beautiful picture of God's kingdom at work. <laughs> God, this is Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Jesus. And he's got a picture of this happening. See, justification Let's back up to justification for just a moment. If this doesn't happen, you will never be glorified. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through this unblemished lamb. That's where it starts. God's way is the only way, and that is justification. This is where you step into the water. You know, it's similar to pregnancy. In the first trimester, you really can't tell what's going on in, on the inside by looking at the outside. But there's a baby in there. And now some of you are saying, Curtis, now wait a minute. You saw what was taking place. It's been, I, I, I'm just saying, it's been a couple times where I've said, hmm, I think you got one coming. I've even, over the last, well, we'll just, 
I mean that they're pregnant. Allison said, explain what you mean. They just have that pregnant glow. I've seen it many times, right? And, I, and I've heard them say, who told you? Or the last one actually said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, I think you are. And she called me and um, anyway, has uh, a little baby today by the name of Sally, Sally Sue. Some of you know her. There's a baby in there, right? But you really can't tell. It's tiny and it's going to need to grow before it's recognizable. This is where Satan, listen to me, church. This is where Satan will oftentimes attempt to kill the baby. Get you to doubt. Oh, it's too small. It doesn't matter anyway. He will come along and try to steal the seed. And look, we can see our culture leaning that way in a physical sense. But Satan also knows how to do this in the spiritual sense. He'll get you to doubt. He'll steal the seed. The parable of the sower, right? Some fell by the roadside and the birds ate it up. It's the outer court of the sanctuary. Sins are confessed and placed on the lamb, but we still need to move. We need to go deeper. The second part, sanctification. It means the rooting out of sin, but, but watch, not the ridding of it. The apostle Paul states, sin is in our members. These bodies we're in are not glorified. Because they contain sin, they're not fully glorified yet. They can't handle the glorification of God, but they can be sanctified. It's not an excuse to keep sinning, but should be a prompting to go deeper, to be washed in the Word. This is the second trimester. Oh, you are starting to show, you are starting to glow. It's the holy place in the sanctuary. Um, The holy place in the sanctuary, it contained three things. The seven-branch candlestick, which was the light, it, meaning that, that when you come into this place, you should what? You should be able to see and you should experience the light. The other thing, it, it, was the, it, it contained the table of showbread. And the table of showbread simply means this. It's God feeding us through his word. It's the spiritual disciplines. Taste and see that I, the Lord, am good. And then there's the altar of incense in there. And the altar of incense, you can read about it in the book of Revelation. What does it do? It's the prayer of the saints. So these are our most specific spiritual disciplines. Time with God, feasting on his word, and the third one, prayer. And that's sanctification. We may sin less, but listen, we may be tested more. Don't lose heart and don't run for the shore. Many of you know my daughter Bethany and that she's in the hospital. She's at Scott and White in Dallas. Be a little tough. She has an eating disorder that came about through a series of events. Now I'm telling you this, the church, so you can pray for her. See, the wrong things grow in the darkness. I she's never thrown up. It's not that. She just, through a series of events, food in some ways became the enemy. She got so light, it's been very difficult. And, and things became very critical and we had to do something. I don't know if, what, if you know what it's like to tell your child, I've got to leave now and go five hours away. But my love is there with you. And we're running back and forth right now. 
I've been told by several of you, meaning the best things for us, what we should do, what it should look like, or this one and that one. But just listen to me. What we needed is just to bring it to the light. This is a testing of our faith through our sanctification. We will get to the other side because God has made that promise. So, we understand it's also a test. It's not just satanic in nature. It's also a test of faith. James says the testing of our faith does what? Produces endurance. If you're never tested, you'll never be able to endure church. It happens to all of us. I'm the senior pastor of a church. Somewhere in all of this, we will be sanctified and God will be glorified. None of us are immune and God continues to lead us through the water. We've got to choose to stay in it with him. And it's here where the the question will be asked by Jesus, am I enough? You see, I had a wise man tell me, don't put your future in other men's hands. God is your provision. And he walks you through these things. Eventually, glorification will come. And I know it's a long message. Stay with me. I combined two messages to get this one done. (laughs) Next week, you'll say, bless you. (laughs) Actually, you won't. I'm preaching on hell next week. Anyway, (laughs) glorification, glorification, it's not just a verb, but it is a noun as well. You need to think on that statement. Glorification is not just a verb, it's a noun as well. This is where the baby is completed. We don't want a baby born in the first trimester or the second. The baby isn't done yet. Sometimes those in the first and second trimesters, yes, they're called into glory early. This world is broken, but glory still awaits for them. The flowers this morning are in honor of Sarah Tucker. For those of you who are new to this church, she was the lead vocalist of our youth worship team. A year ago today, Sarah went from this world to glory at 16 years of age. She was a worshiper, a leader, and most importantly, she was walking in deep water when she was called home. When she closed her eyes on this earth, she opened them in heaven and was glorified. And the true image of her creator in all the glory of him and hers In a new body that can withstand the glory of God. It's in the third trimester that we don't know the hour. Glorification is the most holy place in the temple. When the baby is completed, it's you and God. Jesus comes to deliver. When Jesus leaves the sanctuary, there is no longer a need for an intercessor. Why would would there be on your behalf? Your sins are remembered no more. Something that God does for us. He takes us over the river. It is only possible with God to be glorified, to be taken across the river. Years ago, I've got a lot to... Okay. God calls us to be justified, sanctified, and ultimately He will glorify us. If glorification is the most holy place, Leviticus 16.2, if it's the most holy place, that's what we should pursue. We should be in a place in our lives as we grow up and grow deep, we should be seeking His glory. The Holy Spirit leads our temple because now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and He should lead us into deeper waters with Christ Himself. You remember, I, 
Jesus, he appears in the clouds in the book of Revelation. It's interesting. Revelation 14, he actually appears on the cloud. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one set upon it as the son of man, meaning Jesus, that Jesus returns on a cloud. From early on in Scripture to the very last part of Scripture, what you see is we are, he is still in that glory. And we are to, to pursue and enter into that glory. Years ago, I was standing on the bedside of a woman who was about to go from glory to glory. And one of the things that she, she told me is, uh, I asked her, I said, ma'am, are you afraid? I know what the doctors have said and everything, and we're down from hours now to minutes. And, and she was still very coherent. She said, no, because I know who owns the land on both sides of the river. That's who takes us by the hand and takes us in the glory.